chapter 2, the title of the lesson this evening is The Truth of the Gospel. Oh, it's a great day to be alive if you're alive. Praise God. Praise God. Okay, Galatians 2. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them who were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, what a joy it is to know you, and we're happy to have a relationship with you. We're so grateful you gave your son to die on that cross for our sins. We've come to saving faith because of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. So now as we look into the scripture tonight, we want you to help me to speak clearly. Give us all ears to hear. We pray that you dissolve doubts. Help us to grow in grace and in knowledge. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Okay. In this letter, we have been discussing no other gospel. That's what we looked at in the first one. Then we spent some time working on what it means to be called of God. And last week, we gave you some scriptures from chapter 1 dealing with verse 15, to show you how it pleases the Lord when that baby emerges from mama's womb, that every child has some particular task, assignment, or calling that is attached to it. Well, this evening, as we look into this, I want us to observe how Paul continues with his personal testimony how he became a believer and then began to walk in and out amongst the, the saints of God. It says in the preceding verses, the last verses of chapter 1, he, he says that in verse 19 of the apostles, he only saw James, the Lord's brother. Then in verse 21, he talks about how he came into the regions of Syria and then verse 23, how surprised the people were when they heard that the one that persecuted them is now preaching the faith that he wants destroyed. The first sentence of chapter 2 is interesting to me because it speaks of 14 years after. Now, 14 years is a long time. That really is, if you, if you think about it. I have been in Nebraska in Red Cloud for 20 years been coming back and forth down here for about 18. Some of you I've known a long time. So that 14 years is a, is a long period. And if you consider Paul's ministry in the book of Acts and you think of his journeys, his struggles, his trials, the difficulties that he had, I think it says a whole lot that 14 years later he's still serving God. You think about people that you have known who at one time, had a fire in their belly for the Lord, and they were on, they had a great zeal for God, but that fizzled. You've probably known people that maybe during a crisis in their life, they really wanted to press in and come to know who the king was. However, circumstances changed, and then their desire for God changed. I, I see that often as a pastor. I've seen people, you can't, not, you can't get them out of church 
you can't uproot them because they're going through so many different trials or struggles in their life. Then the struggles cease, then you can't get them to answer the telephone. You can't get them to answer the door when you knock on it to talk with them. So with Paul, I think this is important that 14 years later, he's still serving God. And that's a good testimony for you. That after all you've come through, been through, the people you've seen come and go, that you still are serving the Lord. So he says here, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was not always a nice place for him once he became a Christian. It certainly was during the time he was a Pharisee. In fact, they persecuted the saints. Saul, or Paul, stood there when Stephen died. And you remember when he became a Christian, the Bible tells us that it was in Jerusalem that some of the saints didn't want to have anything to do with him after he became a Christian. I don't think they even believed he truly was saved. They probably thought he was acting like a Christian to infiltrate the church and then put other people in jail. But he goes back to Jerusalem again. And I think that is important for all of us in this way. Just because you have bad experiences in a location, that doesn't mean you should never go there again. Your experiences can get better. Just because you have a few bad moments, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to avoid it for the rest of your life. Some people will do that, but I'm telling you, you don't have to do that. You, you, can, you can walk with God and God can do wonderful things for you in the same location where you had some bad situations occur. You've been following, as I have, all of the things going on with uh, folks in Pennsylvania and kids abused and all that kind of stuff. And so there, there are a whole lot of people that they said didn't even bother to show up for worship on Sunday. Well, I, I want to tell you this. If, if, if I go out and fall into sin... And then you decide you're not going to walk with God anymore and you're going to turn, turn away from the king. Then what that means is you had more faith in me than you have in God. Your faith is supposed to be in God. And, and you don't ever want any human beings to be so precious to you that you decide, well, I, I just can't go back to church ever again. Now, there were a lot of Protestants that did that back in the 80s when we had a number of preachers that ended up doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing. And it was all across the television, and many of these were popular. And I met people who backslid during that time who to this day are not serving God. I wonder how in the world could you allow someone else's failures to separate you from your relationship with God? If my wife backslid and said she wasn't going to serve God anymore, I'm not backsliding with her. And vice versa, she wouldn't do that for me. And so if the neighbor down the street gets involved with something, we're not going to say we're not going to serve the king anymore. I'm looking to make it to New Jerusalem. So I'm not going to avoid trying to go to heaven just because of bad things that are taking place down here on planet Earth. If this man could go back up to Jerusalem and do it again, all of us should be willing to do it. And notice he says he went with Barnabas and took Titus with him. Now, who was Barnabas? Barnabas was his friend. When Paul wanted to introduce himself as a new believer to the Christians in Acts chapter 9, it tells us that the new Christians did not want to have anything to do with him. So let me read two verses from Acts 9, verse 26 and 27. It says, when Paul 
tried to come to Jerusalem and join himself to the disciples. They were afraid of him and they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Barnabas took this man under his wing who had a bad reputation as a Pharisee for persecuting Christians. And Barnabas became a mentor to Paul and he became a friend. And and a good friend is what we need as Christians. We need people in our life that are that are close to us. This man, Barnabas, went out on the limb for someone who had done terrible things. As I said, Paul was involved with the death of at least one saint. That's Stephen. He imprisoned. I don't know how many. And now he has liberty and freedom and he's become a Christian. All of his sins have been forgiven. And now he wants to go and worship with the Christians who still have family members and friends that are yet in jail. So you can understand why they didn't want him around. But Barnabas took the time and invested in him. Have you done that with someone? Did someone do that with you? Did someone take time to invest into your life, your Christian experience, to make you stronger, to make you a better, a better person? Maybe you've stood up for people before and maybe they let you down. Somebody needed a, a loan at a bank. You co-signed. Maybe a friend needed this or needed that. And, and you, you went out of your way to try to be a blessing to them. And they went out of their way to still turn your name into something that's bad. But Barnabas took a chance. And I think if you ever find a friend, you should be quite happy that you have one. Because there are a lot of people that go through this life and don't have any at all. I had a man one time in his 70s tell me after he heard me teaching uh, one time on friendship... And he said to me, he said, you know, I, I think at my age, I don't know. I don't know that I have a friend like you described. Imagine that making it to your 70s and not have a friend. Paul and Barnabas were good friends. Let's back up to the Old Testament. Go to Proverbs 16. I want to read a couple of verses to you about this before I move on to this other stuff. Uh, Proverbs 16, and uh, where is my verse here? Proverbs 16, verse 28. A froward, that's an old English word for perverse. A froward man soweth strife, and a whisperer separateth chief friends. Now think about that. When Barnabas connected himself with Paul, I don't doubt that there were Christians saying to him, do you really want to be connected with him? This man may not be on the up and up. And if the Lord gives you a good friend or gives you friends, it's possible that there'll be people that do everything they can to try to separate you from that relationship. Sometimes it's jealousy. Sometimes they just don't want you to have anybody that you're close to. But as you can see there from Proverbs 16, 28, it, it happens. Look at chapter 17. It says it in a similar way in verse 9. He that covereth a transgression seeks love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. So here are people that are close, and then you let your guard down, and you expose some of your flaws and failures to somebody that you believe is a very good friend. 
And of course, you're expecting them to hold that private in their heart. And then they go out and share it with somebody else. Then how do you feel? You feel betrayed. And if that happens two or three times, you put a wall up where you won't let any kind of a Barnabas get into your life to be a blessing to you, to try and encourage you. That the things that we say can build people up and pull people together or what we say can tear people apart. Now, this works even if you if you were friends with somebody for many decades and then something happens and it fell apart. Whatever it was they told you in private, it ought to remain in private just because you're not friends now. And that person may be hostile towards you. You should not go out and spread all of their business in the streets. You shouldn't do that. that that's not what a friend does. Look at chapter, we're still in 17. Look at verse, um, verse 17. We're talking about a friend right now. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. So notice that a friend loves at all times. Does that mean sometimes? No, all the time. Do you have a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? See, all times means a friend is going to be good to you whether or not they like your current behavior, whether or not they like your present speech, whether they like some of the things you're doing, the places you're going, some of the decisions that you're making right now a friend is not going to separate from you just because you're acting up a handful of times a good friend is somebody that's going to be with you all the time now proverbs 18 verse 24 gives us something else that's interesting proverbs 18 24 a man that hath friends must show himself friendly and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother so now we see the principle of sowing and reaping if you want friends become a friend if you want to have friends, be a friend to somebody. Sometimes you have to take the first step in trying to get to know people. and Spending time with people. And this is what we have. Now, we read the verse where it says a brother is born for adversity. But then here it tells us a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. <clears throat> so, again, I, some of you I've known since the very first year. I came into Nebraska. We're down here in these parts. Some of you I've come to know recently. However, friendships develop because people pass through a variety of trials together. So I, I've walked through a number of valleys with some of you, folks in the other churches, and folks in these communities who are not even a part of uh any of the churches where I teach. But the relationships become strong because the trouble is what produced the brotherhood. Trouble came, somebody had a need, and then it happened. A relationship was born or solidified, I should say, solidified. Well, think about it. All the years that I've been out here, I, I've been to more graduation uh, graduation ceremonies for the people that I pastor that I have for the people in my family. I'm 19 hours away from my family in Cleveland, Ohio. My wife is 16 hours away from hers. I'm closer to some of you than I am to some of my own blood kin because I've had coffee with you more. 
I've had meals with you more. I've had conversations with you more than I've had with some of those that are in my own family. Yeah. So when the scripture says here that he that has friends must first show himself friendly, I understand that even as a pastor, you have to sow into people's lives in order for people to sow back into yours. It's the principle. It's the principle. And if we don't have friends, we have to ask ourselves, are we sowing into people's lives in order to get a harvest of friends? Now let's go back to Galatians 2. So this is the relationship that Paul and Barnabas had. Fourteen years later, they are still friends. I like that. I do. Some of you have friends that you've known for 40 years, and you guys still get together, and I mean, everybody just cackles like hens and has a wonderful time when they all get together, and the guys get together with some of their old friends, and some of you have high school acquaintances that you have known for a long time, and the girls still like to get together for a girl's day out, and the boys like to get together in the man cave and have a wonderful time. That's wonderful. That's good. And I hope and pray those relationships stay solid. Well, in verse 2, we learn here, that he goes back up to Jerusalem because of divine revelation. I don't know if this was a dream or a vision or if somebody prophesied to him or like in Acts 13 where the whole church came together and heard from God. But I do know that he went up there and he, he gave them a report of what God was doing as he was preaching to the nations, the gospel to the non-Jews or to the Gentiles. And the people were hearing the stories and they were excited I like that. I like when people give reports about what's going on around the world. I enjoy hearing missionaries testify or evangelists share what's going on in different meetings or pastors talk about what they're hearing about in various churches. But privately, the people who had some kind of a reputation, he had a little special meeting with them and spoke with them about some other issues. And I'm sure the issue they dealt with had to do with this circumcision. Why is circumcision dealt with in the next several verses? Circumcision in the Old Testament was very important. God gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. And he said to Abraham, every male child that's born into your family has to be circumcised. And, and the, uh, the reason that this is important is because that covenant in their flesh is a showing of a promise that I've made to your seed to bless them, to preserve them, and to keep them. Well, once Paul came into Christianity, he realized that a baby no longer needed to be circumcised, that God does it by the Holy Spirit in the heart now. So in Jesus' day, on the eighth day, a rabbi came and with some kind of a little sharp instrument, circumcised the foreskin of the flesh and the little male child. But, but now in Christ, circumcision is no longer necessary. You cannot be compelled as a man or as a, as a, as a, a male child, your parents can be compelled to force the child to be circumcised because Christ has done the work in our hearts spiritually now. And this is what Paul is contending as he's teaching them. Now, this is an interesting thing because in verse Verse 1 there, it talks about this gentleman named Titus, and Paul says, we didn't even compel him to be circumcised. But if you remember Acts chapter 16, 
Paul had another person on his ministry team named Timothy. And in order for Timothy to travel with him, Paul made Timothy get circumcised. Later on, Paul is going to accuse Peter of hypocrisy without even mentioning in this letter that he himself forced a Christian to be circumcised at one time. I think we, 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 we need to be careful about taking any kind of a, a religious ceremony and believing it has something to do with salvation. The only thing that saves you is the blood of Jesus and your relationship with him. But circumcision today certainly wouldn't do that at all, even though Jewish people still practice this. And in Muslim countries, they even circumcise the little girls. You can believe that. And it's a, it's a sad thing that, that they do that. But let's, let's look back here at verse number, verse number four. He says there were false brethren that came in. Now, brethren is the term to describe men and women that are Christian. The reason he calls them false brethren is because they looked and act like sheep. They conducted themselves like they believers, like they were believers, but they really were not believers. They came in to spy out our liberty and bring us into bondage. Now, how does that, that operate? I'll tell you exactly how that operates. There are people who are interested in what you believe, and then they'll compel you or encourage you to go through some kind of a religious ceremony or act in order to show that you're saved or in order to show that a child is saved. You've got to be you want to be careful about that. People will bring you into bondage. I had an occasion one time where I was preaching in a church in North Carolina. I think I was 19 years old. And we were out in the, the uh, rural area. And so it was a revival service. The pastor was a lady. And I was seated up in the pulpit. And I noticed she brought some gentlemen up there into the pulpit with me who were dressed really nice. Uh, these two gentlemen, they had dark pants on and a white shirt and a tie. And so I had to preach that night. And she said, does anybody want to uh, testify? And so people got up and testified. And then she said, these two gentlemen here are elders from another church. They're going to get up and they're going to speak. So one of them got up and started talking. And then after about four or five minutes, then they mentioned Joseph Smith, the Mormon church. And I immediately realized this woman has got me up here in this church with some Mormon elders. And this is, was a, like a holiness church I was preaching at. So I, I could see they were all looking at the pastor and I was looking at the pastor. And she knew she had to hurry up and get up there and get them out of the pulpit as quick as possible. I'm sure she was quite embarrassed because she didn't bother to check out the backgrounds of these people before she put them up there in the pulpit. But here was the thing. Uh, the, the whole point of them coming into a church service was to, to find out if they would have the opportunity as missionaries from their church to, to spread their good news about Joseph Smith, hoping that we would take the bait and convert to Mormonism. So using our liberty in order to bring us into the bondage of what they believe, which I certainly think it would have been bondage had anybody followed through with that. But you have to be strong enough in your faith to understand that you don't need to 
do certain things in order to prove your salvation to anybody. I've, I've had this happen on, on a number of occasions with families that, that, that I pastor when I've taught on this. And they said, I wish we would have known you when our children were born. And they had a whole lot of pressure on them to do this or do that uh, for the infant in order for it to seem like the infant is in a right relationship with God. But, but listen to me, folks. When, when, we, when we know God, you don't have to do anything special for a little baby. A little baby is innocent. A little baby is not guilty of actual sin. We all come into this world stained with original sin. But a little baby isn't guilty of actual sin. And that's why when David was fasting for his baby that eventually died, he said, I don't need to fast anymore. He said, because one day I'll go where that child is. He understood what happens to a little one when that little one passes away. Looking back here at verse number number five, he says, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. So he said we we shouldn't even give the opportunity uh, for that to be proclaimed. We don't want to be brought into bondage over something like that. Now, Now let's go to second John at the end of the New Testament back there by Revelation. Go to second John. And I'll show you a couple of verses that are good to know. Second John. So we're talking about the truth of the gospel. We know God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. The son so loved the world he gave his only life. And those that trust in his death benefit from that gospel so we know his death was sufficient to save all but efficient only for those who trust in what he has done on calvary's cross but notice in second john it says in verse seven many deceivers have entered into the world who confess not that jesus christ comes in the flesh this deceiver is an antichrist now there are a lot of churches you'd be surprised at this there are a lot of churches that don't believe that jesus was really a man believe he was only God. And if you were in the New England states, talking about Massachusetts, parts of Delaware, Vermont, places like that, there are a lot of churches over there that claim to be Unitarian. Unitarian people, they promote the deity of the Lord rather than the humanity of the Lord. John says here in verse 8, Look to yourselves or pay attention to yourself that you don't lose the things which we have wrought, but that you receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ doesn't have God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ have both the Father and the Son. This is important. Jesus was the Son of God. Muslims don't believe that. Jewish people don't believe that. So when John says in the first epistle of John, when he says he that hath the son hath the father, he's saying if you believe Jesus is the son of God, then you have a relationship with God the father also. But anybody that denies that God has a son, that person doesn't know God, doesn't have a relationship with him at all. The last chapter of the Koran talks about, one of the last surahs of the Koran talks about that Allah doesn't beget, neither has he begotten anyone. So they're saying he doesn't have a son. When you look at the dome on the rock, whenever, when I lived in Israel, I spent a lot of time up on the top of that mountain 
with those little Arab kids, giving them candies and food and all that stuff and having fun with a lot of my friends as we were studying Arabic and Hebrew. But on the Dome of the Rock, on the outside, there's all this beautiful Arabic calligraphy. But that calligraphy says Allah doesn't have a son. All around the circle, and that Allah doesn't have a son. So you have a big dome, a gold dome, with letters all around the, the, the sides of it that are testifying worldwide to people that know Arabic that Jesus is not the Son of God. That's important to know. So when we come back over here to Second John, look at verse, verse number 9 again. It says, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ has the Father and the Son. But if there come to you anybody and they don't bring this doctrine, receive them not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So verse 10 says, somebody with a false doctrine, and they're trying to bring you into it and remove you from the purity of the doctrine of Christ. He said, don't even let them in your house. Now, in ancient times, they didn't have church building. They met in their home. So that's what the, the house was for as a place of worship also. That, that's not to say if, if you have neighbors that are Hindu or Buddhist or Jehovah's Witness or animist or atheist that you can't have folks over for dinner and have a good time and shake hands with them across the fence or just laugh and joke with them. I mean, how can you reach people if you don't reach out to them? We, we can't reach sinners if if we don't somehow get connected with them and bring them into our world and we enter into their world, that's the only way to be a good, strong witness. However, if in the process of that in your home, you, you quickly discover that somebody's going out of their way to try to convert your kids to false doctrine or you to something that's wrong, then this is where uh, Mr. John goes out of his way and says, don't receive them into the house and don't bid them Godspeed. Godspeed meaning God bless you. See? It's like when, you, when uh, some Spanish people are departing from talking with one another, they'll say, vaya con Dios. Go with God. But as a Christian, I can't say to someone of a religion that I know or believe teaches something false, God bless you as you go on your way to win the world. That's, a, that's, that's impossible. Scripture here says, he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of, of his evil deeds. So even with our speech, we have to be careful. So coming back to Galatians 2 now, this is why Paul says in verse 5, we, we don't give subjection, we don't subject ourselves to people teaching false doctrine, not even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue. The truth of Scripture can only continue if you allow it to persist in your life. Believe me, there's a lot of stuff out there that is false. Verse 6, he says, but if there were people there who seemed to be something, he said, it didn't matter to me. God doesn't accept anybody's person. He said, they didn't even add anything to me in their presence. There are many people who who want to present themselves like they're something when they're not. Yeah. I remember one of, one of the other towns around here, somebody was telling me about how for one of the high school reunions, there was always a gentleman who would come back and he'd flash all of this, uh, you know, jewelry and stuff and always wearing these nice suits and everything like that. And, 
and, and, and showing off his car. And, and then when it was all over, then they, they, they found out that he was renting the car, that he didn't even have a whole lot of money, but he was just putting on airs in front of the people he was going home to see. There are folks like that, you know. And they, they, they want to present themselves as if they're better than other people. That, that's not good at all. Paul says in these people's presence, he said, I feel equal to them. They're not better than, than I am at all. And you should be the exact same way. I know I've met people that had they not told me how great they were, I would have never known it. Yeah, had they not told me. Yeah, <clears throat> so we, we, we hold the gospel understanding that we're all sinners saved by grace, transformed into saints of God. But whether someone has a lot of money or a little money, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It doesn't tilt in any one direction. God doesn't treat you any different than he treats me. And there's, no, there's not going to be any special places in heaven where God's going to say, okay, well, you know, all, all the folks that have been real good, they're going to be over here and have these golden streets. And then the people that hadn't been so good, they're going to be over here and they're going to have asphalt. None of that's going to take place. Paul says here in verse number seven, on the contrary, he said, when they saw the, that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcision was committed to Peter, and that he that wrought strongly or powerfully in Peter also wrought strongly or powerfully in me, which is verse 9, he says, they offered to him the right hand of fellowship. Uncircumcision is what non-Jewish people practice. So I'm, I'm a Christian. American born and raised, but I've never been circumcised. Don't need to be circumcised. It took place in my heart, according to Romans chapter 2. I've gotten into arguments with some of my friends in the Middle East who are Christians and still try to practice circumcision. And so I always say to them, well, what, what is the point of it if, in fact, the covenant we have now is the new covenant, and it's greater than the one that Abraham had. What's the point of circumcision? They said, well, you know, the doctors, they say that it's healthy. I said, how do you know it's healthy? How is it healthier? We go round and round about all of that. Really what it is, is the people know that if they don't get their kids circumcised in those Jewish communities, the Jewish people will shun them and treat them badly. And so this is why they want to be able to glory in their flesh so that they can tell the Jewish people, our kids, our male children are circumcised just like, like yours are. Well, in verse number, verse number uh, 8, he talks about the grace of God that's at work in both of them. Peter and Paul preached the same gospel, but they were called to two different groups of people. That's important. This is, this is one of my foundational stones when it comes to what ministers are supposed to say and do. We should all essentially preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've told you over and over again what the, those core principles are. The virgin birth, sinless life, his death on the cross for our sins, his burial, resurrection, ascension, his seat at the throne of God, where one day he's going to be judged. So those are core principles that everybody should preach. However, everybody can't preach to the same people, so people got to go in different directions. 
And when I've talked to my friends, they say, well, I don't understand why you stay out there in those rural areas. Why don't you go? Why don't you come out here in one of the big cities or take another one of these larger churches and do this or do that? And I say, it's because in my heart. The king has told me I need to be here. That's the only that's the only reason he has told me I have to be here. It's not because we haven't had invitations to go to different places. We've had several. I think uh, not even a few few weeks ago, we had a church uh, down in Kansas City with several hundred people that called us and wanted, wanted us to become the pastor down there. And and uh, I told Tiffany, I said, well, I said, that, that really would be something, you know. I said, but we better not think about that too long. So I told my friend, I said, nope. I said, we can't leave. I said, we can't leave. We, we have to be right here. Well, here's the point. God sends different people to different locations, but we should all say the same thing. Now, if you turn the television on, sometimes you'll hear ministers say this. Well, I just believe God has just called me to teach on money to the body of Christ. So you have some of them. They, they think they're experts in teaching on money. Uh, they are experts, but it's in teaching you how to give up all of your money. That is what they're experts on. And that's why when you follow so much of that, uh, they end up becoming the millionaires and the billionaires. And then and then the collection agencies are coming to you because the money you should have used to pay your bills. You were sending it to that TV evangelist. And, and don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with supporting people in media production. We're on radio all the, we're on radio every week. It costs hundreds of dollars to be on radio. And a few years ago when we were on television all across the states, I mean, that thing was $13,000 every time it aired. We were on one whole year preaching the gospel all across this nation and Europe. So we, we understand how it works. However, we also know we have to preach the gospel. The whole gospel to the whole man. That's how it has to be preached. So we, 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 we stay away from pet peeves. Now you'll notice though on, on television and radio, if you listen to what many ministers believe God has told them that they're supposed to preach, it's always a happy message. <coughs> See, God called me to, you know, they'll say, God called me to just preach on the love of God to everybody. Or God has told me that I'm supposed to inspire people and encourage them. How, when was the last time you met somebody that said, I feel like the message God has given me for this hour is the wrath of God. You're probably not going to get a lot of offerings off of that. Yeah, so you, they, they stay away. Stay away from that. So back here in verse number eight, it's the power of God working in Paul, just like it's working in Peter. And in verse nine, it gives the names of three people. James, Peter, and John, who are essentially uh, role models and elders and pillars in the church. They saw the grace of God in Paul. Now, mature people can do that. If a person walks with God, spends time in the word, and reads the book, and is renewing their mind with scripture, they'll be able to see what God is doing in you, if God is at work in you. Because if, you, if you're really passionate about God... And you want to see God really transform your life and, and turn it around so that he can move you in the direction where you can find his plans and his purposes and the will of God for your life. There'll be people that can see that God's doing that. But there'll also be people that can see that you're not pursuing God, even though God may be pursuing you. 
Passion is important. And grace is something that changes hearts and changes lives. These men were mature enough, having had a relationship with Jesus, that they could see what the Lord was doing. So you don't ever want to quench somebody's fire if they're passionate about, about the king. I, I've, I've met young, young ministers that had a whole lot of zeal but didn't have a whole lot of wisdom. And, and I mean, they, they're just out here trying to win the world, telling everybody about Jesus Christ, and they weren't always as tactful as they could be with, with some of their language when they're witnessing to people. But I don't say anything because I was the same way. I was the same way. As a teenager, I just wanted to see people come to know Jesus Christ, and, and I didn't have a whole lot of wisdom, even though what I was doing in some ways was working. I told you about junior high school. Teacher walk out of the class. I'd jump up on the desk, had my Bible, and I'd start preaching. I'd say, folks, I'm telling you right now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. In junior high school. And in between class, I'd be in my locker, especially before homeroom, I'd be in my locker passing out tracts to people. And, you know, it gets to the point where people start avoiding your locker. <laughs> That's what happened. They start avoiding your locker. Well, they, they, they called the principal, and the principal brought me down there and had me in his office. He said, now, look, he said, I don't have a problem with, with you and, and Jesus and you getting religion and all that. But he said, you can't be telling these kids they're going to hell. I said, really? You're not supposed to say that? You can't. He said, you can't tell kids you're going to hell. He said, now, if you keep this up, I'm going to have to call Call your parents and we'll have to have a conference or something like that. He said, I let you, he said, tell me, are you going to do this again? I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not telling anybody they're, they're going to hell. So they let me go back to class. And then a few days later, next time the teacher stepped out of the classroom, I jumped back up on that table again and I was waving that Bible. I said, I'm telling all of you, if you don't need, know Jesus Christ, you're not going to heaven. <laughs> so I told him, I said, you're not going to heaven. Well, my, my, my my preachers and my friends that were older and a lot more mature than I was, they knew God was doing something in me. See, they saw that because I was zealous and they could see I was hungry for God. And I mean, this is all I've done since I was a teenager, you see. So they, they saw what was going on. But imagine if somebody would have grabbed me that would have been maybe in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, said, you know what, you really need to just shut your mouth and stop talking about God. And just shut me down. Could have probably destroyed a ministry. You see. And when we talk to Christians, we want to be careful about how we guide them and minister to them. Because the grace of God that's at work in them is going to affect a lot of other people if they get some wisdom and learn how to walk in it. You don't want to hinder that. Verse 9 again. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go. See, Not stop, but go. Right hand of fellowship. They grabbed hand, arms just like this and embraced and said, we accept you. We believe in you. We support you. I do that, too. I do that, too. So with the, the, the many ministers that we have in the fellowship we're a part of, World Ministry Fellowship, I think there are probably 6,000 preachers around the world. When we have our annual convocation. There are hundreds of preachers. They get together, and I am continually surrounded by young ministers who want to know about God, who want to hear stories about my travels, who want to know what's going on. 
when I'm constantly encouraging them about the things that the king is doing. Then my wife and I constantly have older ministers who just want us around just because they like the passion and the fire that we have. And this is why it's difficult for me to spend a lot of time with preachers that don't have zeal for God. I mean, I, I, I eat, drink, live, and breathe this stuff. We want to see lives changed. And, and when we find young people that love God, we go straight at them. Yeah. I remember when we first came here, we found a young man. He came out to one of the services, gave his heart to the Lord. And, 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 and a, a, another young lady was, was with him. She was out witnessing to a whole lot of older people and leading them to the Lord. But this young man, he got so on fire for the Lord. We sent him out to Bible College on the West Coast. He came back from Bible college. He went to Mongolia. We supported him for a year while he was in Mongolia. He married a Mongolian girl. He's back now in Omaha. Got a really good job up there. Doing well. I got a lot of stories like that. from Young people, teenagers, young adults that behind the scenes we, we worked with. And we wasn't running around patting ourselves on the back. A lot of this stuff was going on and people didn't even know it was going on. We're just trying to let people know about God. Wife and I used to have a young lady used to come to our house. Back then, everybody knew I liked Coca-Cola. So people would, they'd show up with a whole case of Coca-Cola. You know, I guess that was their love offering. They're coming to see Pastor Darrell with a case of Coca-Cola. And, and, and this young lady, we got her so on fire for the Lord. She was going to the Methodist church at the time. And, and she, she, she wanted us to minister to her. We prayed for her. She had an Acts chapter 2 experience with the Lord. I mean, God poured out his Holy Spirit. It was a wonderful thing. And next thing I knew, that little teenage girl was preaching in the Methodist church. You hear me? She invited me to come to the early morning service. I said, you mean to tell me they gave you a service? I said, yep, they gave me a service. I said, would you come? I said, yeah, sure, I'll come. So I went to that early morning service, and sure enough, she got up there and ministered the word of God. I said, wow, this girl's learning. Went off to Bible college. Now she's got a good job still working in a church. All we're trying to do is encourage as many folks as we can. And when we see the grace of God at work in their life, just keep pushing them. Keep pushing. Because all of our witness is, is important in this local region. We thank the Lord for the mega churches in the big cities. But God loves folks out here in the rural heartland too. You know that, right? He loves folks in small towns, too. There's no doubt. Okay, let's finish up. So the right hands of fellowship that we should go and, and that they, Peter and them, would go to the circumcision, only that they, we would, excuse me, only that, only they would, that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also diligent to do or forward to do. Let's back up a few pages. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. This is where we'll stop. 1 Corinthians 16. It's better to receive the right hand of fellowship than the left foot of fellowship. Sometimes churches will ask you to leave if you get too passionate for God and your witness gets too strong. I've seen that happen too. They say, well, we don't do that around here. You're saying amen and getting excited and lifting your hand up and all. What's wrong with you? We don't do that here. And, and I've seen people get uh, politely asked to leave. 
1 Corinthians 16, notice verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. I don't want to give a whole teaching on tithes and offerings. Tithe is 10%. The tithe did not start with the Mosaic law. 10% goes back to Abraham. So from Abraham's time until today, all believers should tithe. That means anything we find, earn, inherit, however that works out, 10% goes to the king of kings. He's our priest. Jesus is our high priest. We tithe, we give to him. You don't tithe to a church when you give you, even though you give your monies to a church, your tithe is going to God. So your conscience is clear. You're blessing God. However, ab- above and beyond that, from time to time, there are offerings for needs that people have. And Paul's specific need was for the saints in Jerusalem. So he took up offerings amongst the Corinthians and sometimes amongst other poor people. Paul didn't care how poor somebody was. He said, there's always something you can give to help the poor saints. And this is a good teaching for a church. And maybe I'll start in on this when we get into the next lesson next week, because we we need to know that the church uh, should do offerings for the poor saints before we take care of the poor folks outside of the church. Take care of your own before you take care of everybody else. That is so important. Okay, so then first day of the week, that's Sunday, the Lord's Day. As God prospers you, you set it aside. You set it aside. When my wife and I do our our, our monies and stuff like that, we never count. Uh, we only work with 90%. We don't work with 100%. We work with 90%. 10% belongs to him. That's what he said he wants. So everything operates on that 90%, sometimes a little bit less, depending on the offerings. And as a Christian, God's made you a good steward. So as God has blessed you, God says, return it unto him. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful this evening. We thank you for your word. We love you. We appreciate all of the richness of your word that we have in these scriptures. And as we continue to learn more and more about this, help to order our steps in paths of righteousness. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.